Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we pray that you would be our vision. Open our eyes, Lord God, to see the truth of your word. Reveal the truth of your word in our hearts and our minds. Grip our lives, God, by your glorious sovereign hand. And teach us how to see your glory through the revelation of Christ, your son. Teach us how to live for your glory by walking obediently to your word. And cherishing your word, God, teach us this morning to cherish your word. Lord, may we exalt you through our time of corporately centering our hearts and our minds around your word. And so teach us and anoint our minds, anoint my lips, God, to speak truthfully from your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the text this morning is The Resurrection and the Life. Uh, I, I joked with Ben earlier saying he, he told me it was getting too long to put it on the CDs. And so I, I told him it was like the Puritans. Whenever the Puritans titled their messages and their books very long. Some of you maybe get that, but most probably won't. Sorry. Sorry. So the resurrection and life part one for the glory of God and the glorification of the son. This is John chapter 11 verses one through 16. And. This is going to be a three-part series over the, uh, over the next three weeks as we look at John chapter 11 and this account of the story of Lazarus. And what happens in, in the story of Lazarus is that Lazarus is raised from the grave. Jesus calls him forth, and he's raised from the grave. And John has been walking, if you recall, for, we've been walking through John, and, and so we've been seeing all of the signs that Jesus has done. And this is the seventh sign in the Gospel of John. And this seventh sign is perhaps the most significant sign until Jesus himself rises from the grave. And so if you think about the signs that have occurred up until this point, there was, uh, th- there was the sign in, in, in John chapter 2 where Jesus um, multiplies or, or he turns the water into wine in Cana of Galilee. And then there was the sign of, uh, of Jesus healing the, uh, the nobleman's son. And, and in each of these signs, we learn something about Jesus. We learn something about who he is and his ministry. And each one is revealing more and more about who Jesus is. And so we, we learn in each of these signs. And each of the signs progress in significance. So that when we see Jesus heal the lame man by the pool of Bethesda, we see him heal a man that had been lame for 38 years. And this isn't. This can't just be attributed to some natural phenomenon that would happen. This can't just be attributed to, uh, to someone, well, he, he just naturally got better, like the man that he healed from a distance or the nobleman's son. No, this was where the power of Christ intersected this man's life and strengthened his muscles and his bones and his legs that had been weak for 38 years. And then he goes on and, and we see where Jesus multiplies bread to feed thousands of people. And then we see where he walks on water, showing that he is Lord over all of creation. He is Lord over all elements. He is Lord over sickness. 
And then we see he gives a blind man sight in chapter 9. I mean, he literally opens this. This man had been born blind, and he opens his eyes that he can see. And then here in chapter 11, the seventh sign, Jesus causes a dead man to rise from the grave. He gives life to this man. And he does it for the glory of God and the glorification of the Son himself. And so if you found your place in John chapter 11, say amen. If you're reading in a pewback Bible, it's page 897. Or the chairback Bible, excuse me, it's page 897. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. So the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go again to Judea. Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said after after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that you may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. The disciples then Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought, excuse me, verse 13. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I'm not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. We see two always statements in this text that really govern our understanding. There there are two purpose statements that kind of give us a key to understanding all of chapter 11. And we must see these two purpose statements. These are purpose statements that govern Christ's action or inaction from whichever perspective you might look at the beginning of this text. And the first one is we see in verse 4. Verse 4, it's that Jesus acts so that he would bring glory to God and that he himself, the Son of God, would be glorified. But then we also see the second purpose down in verse uh, verse 15 where he says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so two, two purposes, two Two things going on in this text. Jesus is revealing the reason that he's interacting with Martha and Mary and the disciples in this way. And so the first one we want to look at is this. Jesus always acts according to the Father's will and for the Father's glory. Now, this, is, this isn't a new theme in John's gospel. 
We've seen time and time again where Jesus speaks of waiting before he goes and proceeds to the next village or the next place or the next feast or Passover or we see time after time where we, we get these clues in these statements or where we see it was not yet his time and so they weren't able to arrest him. We see this in the very beginning, the first miracle Jesus does in the miracle of Cana where he turns the water into wine where his mother comes to him and says, uh, they're out of wine. And he says, it, woman, this doesn't concern me. Why, why do you concern me with this? It's not yet my time, Right. And so from the beginning, early on, Jesus has established that he is walking according to the Father's will. And everything he does, he does according to the Father's will and for the Father's glory. And so verse 1 begins by referring us to the town of Bethany. Bethany means house of suffering. It's near Jerusalem. And, and, and it's foreshadowing for us. Jesus, John is, is leading us to see that Jesus is moving toward the cross as he transitions from the book of signs now into the book of glory. And it's with this particular mindset of going to the cross, the imminency of the cross, that Jesus approaches chapter 11 and this death-defying miracle that he performs. And in this miracle, get this, in this miracle, Jesus reverses the effects of the fall. The effects of the fall are that spiritual and physical death are the consequences of sin that have come into God's creation. Death, spiritual and physical death, a brokenness of humanity. And Christ himself has come to redeem humanity. And so in this miracle, what we see is Jesus reversing the effects of the fall. King Jesus, our Messiah, he grants victory over death and he gives life eternally. And so Jesus shows and teaches what his death will achieve on behalf of God's people, on behalf of all who believe in him and who profess faith in him. Jesus will glorify the father through giving life to his people. And so first this morning, let us see the subpoint. Jesus's love reaches through emotional pain and physical death to maximize our grasp of the glory of God. Jesus desires that as his worshipers, we would see the glory of God, that we would glorify Christ. And in turn, from glorifying Christ, we then give glory to God, the father. And so in verses 1 through 3, we're introduced to the characters in the, in the story, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, or at least some of the characters. In verse 2, we're told of Mary being the, the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with ointment or with oil. You know what's interesting about verse 2 is it's placed here in chapter 11. But we're not told of this account until the next chapter, chapter 12. The point is, it makes such an impact on all of the early church that most of the early church knew of this story. Mary humbled herself and became vulnerable before her master. It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. What she did to Jesus was probably one of the greatest acts of worship in the New Testament it was, it was such an act of worship that most Christians in the early church and early Christendom knew about it. And I think it's for that reason that John inserts that particular detail here. It's as if he's saying, in essence, uh, you know, 
Lazarus is the guy that he's the he's the brother of, of, of Mary, the one that anointed Jesus's feet. You know, Lazarus, because of what Mary, you know, Mary, that's kind of the, the, the point of why John introduces. And, and I think it goes to to show us that. Jesus had an affection for this family. I mean, this was an intimate time of worship that she comes before him and anoints his feet. And in verse 3, we're, we're told, it says that they report this message, or they report to send this messenger to report to Jesus. And, and the only message they send, Martha and Mary send, is the message that says, the one you love is sick. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. You know, Jesus' affection for the family continues to be shown throughout chapter 11. If you look in verse 35 and 36, which we'll get to next week, it says that Jesus approached the tomb. He wept. And the Jews were saying, see how he how he loved him. We look in verse five. We read now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so. He loved them and and when he heard of the sickness, he stayed two days where he was. Now, when you read this portion of the text, when I read this portion of the text, I ask the question, if he loved them so much, why didn't he go right away? Right. I mean, that would be a logical way that we think. Why didn't he just go right away? Or we would think if if he loved him so much, why wouldn't he do as he did for uh, in John chapter four, uh, chapter four, verse 50, with the nobleman's son, where he simply spoke and said, your son is healed. Why didn't Jesus do that? He had the power. We know he had the authority. Why didn't he? Why did he do that? Before we answer the question, I, I want us to note uh, at least one or two realities about what's happening here. Jesus's love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus doesn't. He doesn't guarantee a pain-free life. It, it doesn't guarantee a life void of sickness or even a life that's sheltered from trials that come through life. I think we also need to see that the love of God and, and suffering, uh, the suffering of his people are not mutually exclusive. Jesus chooses not to heal Lazarus from where he was for the very specific reason that God would get greater glory through the work that Jesus was about to do in restoring Lazarus's life. And so we shouldn't think, we shouldn't be tempted to think that God's unaware of our sufferings or our illnesses. Believer, don't be tempted and, and discouraged to think God is removed or, or, or he's unconcerned about our daily lives. He's always at work in us and through us to accomplish his will for his glory. And so Jesus hasn't forsaken Martha and Mary or Lazarus. And, you know, they don't doubt his love for them. I mean, because they say the one you love is sick, right? They don't doubt his love for them. But here's what they doubt. They doubt that God's plan is the best for them. They don't doubt his love, but they doubt that, that, that his actions are really the best. They know he could save Lazarus. They know that he could have healed him. And so they're, they're asking the question, why, why didn't you come and heal him? In fact, in verses 21 and in twenty 
uh, 21 and 32, we, we see the first thing that Martha and Mary say. It's identical. The first thing they say when Jesus arrives on the scene, the first thing that they say individually, apart from one another, to him, whenever they come to him, is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, verse 6, when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Get this, that verse 6, so, that's a conjunction. And we read it to say, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, so, because of this, when he found out, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because he loved them, he stayed two days longer and delayed going to them. Because of Jesus' love for them, his love is concerned with helping them see the glory of God revealed through the resurrection life. His love for them is concerned with helping them see the glory of God through God's revelation of Christ the Son and the miracle work that He is about to do in raising Lazarus from the dead. That's how great His love is for Martha and Mary and Lazarus and His disciples and all who are going to be gathered around mourning and wailing and to us. That's how great His love is. So I I want us to see, secondly, that God's greater purpose often surpasses our comprehension. And we see this in verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death. The reality that's going on here at this time is by the time the messenger has arrived in Bethany, by the time he arrived there, Lazarus had already passed away. It was a day's journey for him to go from Bethany to where Jesus was. And then Jesus stayed in that place once he heard it two days. And then it was a day journey for Jesus to arrive in Bethany from his location. And so we also know this because in verse 39, when he arrived and he says, roll the stone away, Martha says to him, Lord, he's been dead for days. There's going to be a stench. And so when Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, In verse 4, I love the way that he responds. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. He didn't mean that Lazarus wouldn't physically die. He didn't mean that, that, that Lazarus' death would not happen physically. But what he did mean was that he meant it wouldn't be the end of the story. Lazarus' death wasn't the end of the story. He was saying the glory of God would be evidenced through the miracle of bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And we see God's glory revealed through God the Son. The point that Jesus is making is God receives glory as people recognize and confess that Jesus is the one sent by the Father. That's important for us to see. He has the power to resurrect dead men. Dead women. The Father receives glory when worshipers then glorify the Son. And so Jesus is saying that when people exalt Him, they bring glory to the Father. How do we bring glory to the Father? We worship the Son. 
we exalt Christ. We lift Him high. We praise His name. And so what Martha and Mary couldn't foresee through the suffering of their brother was the glory of God that would be on display for all to see through the miracle of Christ. Jesus loved Martha and Mary enough to allow their brother to die so they could witness the glory of God through his resurrection. Death didn't have a final word in Lazarus's life. This tragedy was turned into triumph as Jesus gave life to his body. Death doesn't have the final word in the life of the believer either. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this. We can't foresee how God might use our sickness or, or even our death. How he might use the sickness or death of, of a loved one for his glory. But this we can trust. We can trust in the promise of his word and the glorious hope of Christ's resurrection. For God was glorified through Christ's exaltation on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. We can hope in that. We can trust in that Christ himself defeated death and he rose from the grave. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells us, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. What we must see from Jesus' statement in verse 4 is that in the midst of suffering, even death, in the midst of emotional grief, the love of Christ and the glory of God intersect and overwhelmingly descend upon our lives. This is a promise of God's word. Mary and Martha perhaps would ask the question, so you're going to take my brother to show your glory? To which God would respond, I gave my son to reveal my glory. Brothers and sisters, we need to see Christ as the revelation of God, the one who has come to bring glory to the Father through exercising his good and perfect will. And then submit our lives to following him in this way, following his good and perfect will. In the remaining portion of the text, we see the second person purpose worked out through Lazarus's death. And, and that is this. Jesus always acts to strengthen the faith of his disciples. He always acts to strengthen the faith of his disciples. In verse seven, he says, then then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? <laughs> really? You ready to go back there? If we look at this portion of the text, I think there are really four lessons that we can learn from Jesus's conversation with his disciples. And the first one is this. We must learn to trust and not worry. We must learn to trust and not worry. We see this in verses seven through ten. 
What the disciples are asking Jesus is, aren't you worried about your life? They're going to kill you. They're, they're thinking back to chapter 8, verse, uh, verse, verse 39, and, and thinking back, or verse 59 in chapter 10, verse 31, where the Jews and the religious leaders picked up stones after Jesus had made statements. They picked up stones to throw at him to kill him. Question might have been from the disciples, is it really necessary for you to go back there? You see, the truth is, the disciple of Christ really has no reason to worry. But aren't we a people that are filled with worry? We have no reason to worry. We see this for the disciples as Jesus, the good shepherd, is leading them. We see Christ himself as the good shepherd giving us an example here of how he has loved his people and how he loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so the disciples of Christ truly have no reason to worry. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, they're going to stone you. You don't have to go there. But Jesus is leading them there. You know, I think the older that we get, if we're not careful, the the greater our tendency becomes, especially uh, when it comes to children, to to worry. We we begin to worry about things. We, especially grandchildren, we 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 begin to worry about things that that are dangerous. And uh, and and this just it's it's I don't know why it's just part of it's part of what we do, right? We we worry about things. Doesn't worry show a lack of trust in God's perfect plan, in his hand in our lives? What do we get so stressed out for? What do we worry so much for? Do we truly believe that Christ, our good shepherd, that God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all the earth, doesn't know what's happening in our lives? Do we truly think that he leaves us on our own to live this Christian life, to walk with him? No, he's given us of his spirit. Those who have believed upon him and and trusted him, he desires to guide us and and to direct us by his spirit. Yet we worry about things that we ought not. Here the disciples are worrying about their life and what might happen to them, what might happen to Jesus, how they might die. Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China, gave some excellent advice. He said, let us give up our work our plans, ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, our influence, our all, right into God's hand. And then when we have given all over to him, there will be nothing left for us to be troubled about. A man who lived by giving all he had over to the Lord. You see, when we walk in the light of God's counsel, the disciple has no reason to worry because in God's will, as we walk according to his plan, it's the safest and the, the greatest place for us to be as disciples. The disciple of Christ must walk in the light. And when the disciple of Christ walks in the light, he doesn't stumble. Jesus says in verse nine, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. Jesus being the light of the world, as he's already said, I am the light of the world, is saying that to walk in him means that we operate our lives by God's timing and in God's will, much as he has shown and done throughout the Gospel of John. 
And as long as we follow Christ, meaning as long as we, 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 we live our lives under the divine leadership of the Holy Spirit, governed by the Word of God, what he's saying is we will not stumble. The question we ask ourselves this morning is, am I walking in the light of Christ? See, those who are without Christ are not under the care of the Father, and they'll stumble because they can't see the light is what verse 10 is saying. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Question, are are you walking in the light of God's counsel or are you walking in your own way? You know, many Christians claim to follow Jesus, but their lives really are, are filled with their own plans, with their own agendas, their own careers, all of which they've wrongfully compartmentalized from their devotion to Christ. And our lives ought to be consumed with pursuing Christ through every activity. This could be a a source of worry and anxiety, right? When we're walking out of fellowship with Christ and walking in sin, that could certainly be a source of worry or stress or anxiety for the believer. But then, you know, the, the other end of that is sometimes we just don't want to let go and surrender it to God. We don't want to entrust God with that thing, whatever that thing may be that continues to crop up in our lives. We we don't want to continually trust God with it. We 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 always want to worry and think that we've got to figure it out. But what we truly need to do is simply come to God, come to the Lord Jesus and entrust all things to him, surrender to him, ask him to work in and through us. Ask him to work in the midst of that situation. Surrender to him. I think the second thing we need to learn in verses 11 through 14 from this conversation between Jesus and his disciples is we must learn to listen intently and not presume. In verses 11 through 14, Jesus had said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him from the sleep. The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Then Jesus spoke and said in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. You know, practically speaking, I think listening intently and not presuming, learning to listen intently and not presuming, I I think it calls us to a life of prayer. It calls us to trust God in prayer. It's easy for us to look at the interaction between Jesus and his disciples and, and say, come on, guys, get with the program. You ought to be picking this up by now. But how often does the Lord prompt us over and over and over again on the same issues that he's been dealing with us in our own lives about? And so learning to listen intently and not presume is something that I think it's a discipline that we as believers must cultivate. I'll give you some questions to ask God in prayer and and meditation over his word as you consider how you might learn intently and listen to the father how about questions like, like, God, what is it you have for me to do today? As you spend time with the Lord in the morning, how, how is it that, that you want me to, to follow you today? God, God, what do you want to show me through your word? How is it that you want to teach me and direct me? What, what are you teaching me about who you are and, and who I am in relation to you? How are you leading me to serve others for your glory? Who are you leading me to share my faith with? What can I do today to make your name known 
among my co-workers. Teach me today what it, what it means to be humble, to be a servant, to be spirit-filled, right? To, to follow your lead. We must learn to listen intently and not presume. Thirdly, we must learn that genuine faith is a growing faith. In verse 15, he tells the disciples, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. As we as we learn that genuine faith is a growing faith, we uh, we see here a call to be lifelong learners. The disciples were ones who believed, right? I mean, they were believing, they were following Jesus, but oftentimes we, we tend to view the disciples as super saints, maybe in an unhealthy way. And so Jesus leads the disciples through this seemingly impossible situation so they see his glory and they believe. In other words, so that their faith increases, so that their faith grows and, and is strengthened. Those who already believe and follow Jesus still needed their faith to be strengthened. You know, they, they couldn't conceive that Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. They couldn't see how that was a possibility. What I want us to see is Jesus works similarly in our lives. Have you ever noticed how God works through difficult seasons in life to grow you and to, to transform you? How God uses those seasons in your life to shape you and to, to mold you? I'm thinking about seasons where we, uh, we, we walk through valleys and we can't do anything to change the position that, that we're in. All we can do is trust God in the midst of this circumstance or difficult season. You ever found that it's in these seasons of life and trial that we experience exponential growth in our faith? It seems that every struggle, every trial is causing us around every turn and every corner to turn our focus and our gaze upon Christ to continually to look to him for his sustaining hand. The reason is because we quit looking to ourselves and to others for help and we we fix our gaze and our focus upon God. It was Billy Graham who said mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit is grown in the valleys. You know, Martha and Mary, the disciples, all of them walking through a valley, have genuine faith, and their genuine faith is now growing because Christ is revealing his glory and he's leading them through these difficult days. The fourth thing, truth, we must learn here, a lesson we learn here is that saving faith is a suffering faith. We see it in verse 16. Saving faith is a suffering faith. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to, him, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> you know, this is the point at which I think believers often short-circuit the work of God that God desires to do in our lives. I love how Thomas says that there in verse 16. Let us go so that we may die with him. Unfortunately, I think many Christians are, are fooled into thinking that following Christ is summed up at the point of their trusting him as Savior. They operate on the false assumption 
that once they're saved, there's no longer any other need to bother with, with living for Christ or, or living in the pursuit of holiness. But the pursuit of holiness isn't an option for just some of the more serious Christians. No, the pursuit of holiness, it's a command from, from the Lord. It's a command from God, First Peter 1, 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you is holy, so yourselves be holy in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy, says the Lord. I think this speaks to the the perpetual work of crucifying the flesh as we've covered in Colossians. Particularly last week in Colossians chapter 3 or in chapter 2 during our, our Sunday morning study times. You know, as we as we pursue Christ, as we crucify the flesh, there is certainly suffering that is involved in that. But there's great joy in walking with Christ. Because walking with Christ and pursuing holiness is infinitely better than any worldly pleasure. Listen to what Martin Luther had to say about this. If we consider the greatness and the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult for all of us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, imprisonments, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of the godless for the sake of the great Jesus. Of the great king. Of the glory for which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. You know, the disciples of Jesus felt the weight of his suffering. That's why in verse 8 they balked at returning to Bethany with him. They knew they would suffer at the hand of, of these persecutors, the ones who were wanting to pick up stones and throw at him. They saw the real threat of following Jesus and they felt the extreme weight of what it meant. Death. Thomas responded, he said, I'll I'll follow even even if it costs my life right in verse 16. Let us go that we may die with him. You see, walking with Jesus is a is a walk of joy and it's a walk of fullness. that's unlike anything the world has to offer. But in, in the midst of joyful, radiant living, there will be suffering as Jesus leads us into and through difficult times. But be encouraged, be encouraged because it's done for his glory. It's done for the strengthening of our faith. It's done for a testimony to others that in the midst of great crises, there is a savior who sustains us. Scriptural truth is following Jesus does cost us our lives. The question I ask us to consider this morning is this. Are you struggling to see God's glory in the midst of the valley that you're walking through? If you are, I want want to encourage you. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. It is well with my soul. And as we sing it, I, I want to encourage you to declare praise to God and sing this song from the depth of your soul. If that's you, if you're struggling to see God's hand and God's glory in the midst of the valley that you're walking through, Praise Him. Begin by praising Him. Sing of His worth. 
Declare your love for him. I ask you also, are you actively exalting Christ and glorifying the Father in your life? If not, sing this song from the depth of your soul. Praise him. Cry out to him. Tell him you desire to glorify him. Thirdly, is your faith being strengthened by the Lord? Or are you living apathetically toward Christ this morning? Is your faith being strengthened by the Lord? Or are you living apathetically toward Christ? If you haven't been walking in Christ and being strengthened by Christ, I want to encourage you to repent from your sin, to turn and trust in Christ, live for his glory, live pursuing his will, desire to walk in his will, desire to to follow him, live for his glory and not for your own. Challenge you this morning to respond as the Lord leads you. Maybe you want to come to the steps and kneel and pray this morning. And that's certainly fine if you want to do that. You come and you you kneel before the Lord and pray and repent of maybe sin in your life or maybe for you this morning, right where you're at, you just need to cry out to God, help you, help you to see his glory in the midst of, if, in the midst of this season and suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of grief. Or maybe for you, it's asking him to strengthen you for the journey that you're currently walking on, knowing that his work in your life is about strengthening your faith always about strengthening the faith of his disciples. Let us pray. Father, I pray that as we consider your word this morning and digest it, that it would be morsels for our soul that bring us encouragement and bring us strength and help us to focus our eyes upon you and help us to look to you for your glory Lord, it's our desire to worship Christ, our Savior. And because of his work on the cross, we have the privilege of coming into your presence. We have been given life eternally. For Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. And so, Lord, this morning as we come, we come desiring to praise you, desiring to pray to you, desiring to live for you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.